0: The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. You're listening to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas. And we're live on CHI FM, 101.9 FM in Johannesburg and streaming worldwide. On com today so we're going to be joined in studio by Willi Hoffmeyer The former head of the asset forfeiture unit of the NPA And uh, since leaving the NPA last week He's made some very interesting remarks And um, one of the remarks he said is I'm not trying to make out that the president has too much power It's just a general appointment in terms of law enforcement personnel So this is very, very interesting Because um, the, the president's powers are sweeping in the terms of Willy Hoffmeyer And that these sweeping powers need to be addressed So we'll be taking that up with uh, Willi Hofmeier A little bit later in studio I'd like to remind you the views expressed on the show Are not necessarily those of High FM or its management You're listening to The Confidential Brief With Chad Thomas on High FM So my guest in studio today, Vili Hofmeyer, epitomizes workaholic, what should be his first day of freedom. He's actually spent at the office doing handovers, and he's made the time to come in to chat to all of us today. Vili, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here. Vili, you have an incredible
0: pedigree when it comes to your history, not just within law enforcement or the work um, you did at the... Um, national parliament in the national assembly or the work that you did on the various committees particularly the judicial committee with regards to the chapter of the judiciary in the constitution but prior to that you were actively involved in the struggle um, against apartheid. Let's go back to all those years. How did you get involved in the struggle?
1: Um, it was kind of partly due to my sister. Uh, we lived quite close to UCT in Cape Town and my parents... We very pragmatic, so they said we should go to the closest university. Um, so I went there, but actually, before then, I spent a year doing military service in the Air Force, and I think that was one of my very formative years. It was the first time you know I grew up in Pinelands and Cape Town, racism was there, but not very overt. So it was the first time that I heard people use the K word and chasing black people off the road when on when they are on bicycles. You know, so it was just a huge shock to my system to discover just how bad racism was in our country. And so I spent the rest of my military service being quite an angry young man, but not being able to show anything mm. <laughs> because you're in such a powerless position. But then when I got to, to UCT, I sort of started being interested in alternative politics. I joined NUSAS. I had Francis Wilson as one of my lecturers, and Johan Marie, who's Helen Ziller's husband, by the way. Now he was also one of my lecturers. And so they sort of taught me about alternative politics in South Africa, basically. So I... Uh, Sort of, it was only in the sort of end of my first year that I started getting actively involved. But from my second year, I sort of got head over heels involved in in student politics, as well as uh, we sort of had a wages commission in Nicosia that helped to organise the early union movements. This is seventy three, seventy four, and so I got heavily involved actually in in that part of it. We. Brought out a regular newsletter that we distributed in the African townships, which is illegal every time we got <laughs> caught and arrested and locked up for a few hours and then released. So, I mean, that's, yeah, that's sort of, you know, I think my family values is what got me involved in all of this and being on the right side of, of things and a disdain for those who were both corrupt or just supporters of apartheid and oppression that went with it. So eventually in my third year, um, right at the end of the third year actually, we about seven of us at UCT got banned under the old Internal Security Act, which meant we weren't allowed on any educational institution premises, we weren't allowed to write anything for publication, we weren't allowed to communicate with each other, we were all I was sort of banned to a different magisterial district where my parents were in Pinelands, so my girlfriend and I were so, sort of we'd been only been recently involved that we were banned to different magisterial districts so eventually friends sort of decided that we should get married <laughs> so that we could get permission to see each other <laughs> regularly or live together so that with i think it was Jimmy Kruger at the time. I have been Adrian Flock already yet Sort of took about Four or five months to get permission To do that And you know, then at least we could settle down But it You know it was a kind of three year We remained banned for nearly Five years till P.W. Bota came in in his early Reforms in the 80s We got a few months discount of our Five years But you know it was sort of almost doing politics underground because if we ever got caught it meant sort of three to six months in prison for breaking our banning orders even if it was perfectly legitimate publications we just weren't allowed to contribute to any publication or be any part of it or be with more than one person at a time so after that it was a sort of beginning of the community movements in Cape Town in the early 80s. Um, There was a bus boycott that I sort of got quite involved in with my mathematical skills and doing the calculations and so on. But I sort of got involved in the community organizations that were the precursor to the United Democratic Front or the UDF that was formed in 1983. And uh, I sort of then got very heavily involved in the UDF, then came the state of emergency in the mid-80s, so the UDF was banned, a number of us active in the UDF were once again banned under even more restrictive orders than before, that now meant we were house arrested over weekends and every night, so we really weren't, you know, it made it very difficult, even though I was still involved in politics clandestinely, it was... Kind of high-risk stuff because I just had to catch you out of your house at the wrong time.
0: (laughs) So, Vili, I I don't think many South Africans realize the role that other people played in the struggle, including white people. People don't tend to recognize the, the impact that a whole array of people made. And you small in stature, but you must have the heart of a tiger because when when one looks at the pictures of the eighties, you being led to a police van, you then being manhandled, you then literally being picked up by guys literally twice the size of you. How many times did this happen? How many times were you detained? And what was it like being detained as a white South African by white police officers?
1: It was in some ways rough because there were so few white males that were detained and they had a sort of strict segregation policy. So very often I was the only white male to be detained, which meant that you sort of effectively stayed in solitary confinement or on your own. So in that way, it was rough. But, you know, I think we were all inspired by, you know, the UDF did make a lot of strides throughout the 80s. And in a sense, the Declaration of the state of emergency was almost an admission of failure by the government, that it had not been able to, to repress the democratic movement as it had done in the late sixties. So I think throughout this period, you know, some of it was hard, but I had a lot of support from a wide range of people around me, although I could only see one at a time. But, you know, it was, uh, It was a optimistic period, even though there were times when it was pretty grim. Um, Much better than the seventies in a way, when you just had a census may go on for 20 years (laughs) or something. So in many ways, I think the end was sort of being in sight and sort of from 87 or so, 86, late 86, you know, we also started hearing about the initial talks between Government and the ANC outside, so that sort of gave us a, a bit of a idea that, uh, you know, that things may change. But it, it remained pretty grim until they did change. Mm.
0: We're chatting to struggle veteran uh, Willi Hoffmeyer. When we come back from the break we're going to be chatting about um, the last 25 years of democracy um, where Willi's played a very active role having assumed a position as a member of parliament after the first elections. But we want to chat what happened between 1990 and 1994 and then from 1994 until the present day. We'll be back with Willi Hoffmeyer shortly. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief live on CHI-FM, 101.9 FM in Johannesburg and streaming worldwide on dot com. In studio with us today is struggle veteran Willie Hoffmayer who beyond the struggle has, has made his name in law enforcement in South Africa as one of our finest law enforcement enforcers, not just from a parliamentary level as a legislator from 1994 until 1999, but thereafter as a member of the National Prosecuting Authority, first in the Asset Forfeiture Unit, later as Head of Legal Affairs, and then back at the asset forfeiture unit Before we get to the asset forfeiture And your time spent in um, Law enforcement in South Africa Let's go back to the 80s You were detained more than 20 times At a stage you were on a hunger strike How is it that you were still able To complete three degrees One being a law degree And, and two being economic based
1: um, I mean uh, to some degree, in the late 70s, when I was first banned for a long period, I kind of took a strategic decision that it was unlikely that I would be able to get really involved in politics again. And so I was sort of inspired by Arthur Chaskelson, George Bezos, Jeff Badlinder, who started this in notion of public interest law, the Legal Resources Center, that started doing really big cases, challenging the whole pass system for instance and managing to get it set aside in court essentially so you know I thought I'm probably going to be on the wrong side of the law for a long time so or banned at least which means I can't be with more than one person so I thought law at least is one place where you can meet with your clients in the mm. As part of your job and, you know, where I can act for people involved in politics and sort of help using the law to protect them or to broaden the space in which the democratic movement can operate, which we did sort of inch by inch, not just me. Obviously, there's a string of public interest lawyers at that time playing quite an important role.
0: There was obviously a lot of respect um, that the party had for you in respect of the fact that when the first democratic elections took place and you were sent to parliament um you were you were put onto some very serious committees and while the drafting of the constitution took place you were put onto one of the most important committees and in fact you chaired that committee so tell us a bit about your relationship coming from the UDF now becoming a member of parliament for an unbanned party the ANC and how that relationship developed during those years in parliament
1: yeah, I mean the first parliament was an incredibly interesting parliament in a sense because we almost had to rewrite the law book, at least in, the, in regards to the justice system. But in in a sense, for me, par- the biggest highlight actually was part of the ne- being part of the negotiations for the new constitution. I'd sort of been a little bit involved in the interim constitution that was passed before ninety four, but I, together with uh, Douglas Gibson, I think it was from the Democratic uh, Party at the time, were sort of co-chairs of the committee that wrote the bit in the Constitution about the justice system, essentially, and the National Prosecuting Authority. (laughs) Little did I know then that I was going to end up working there, but... uh but then after the constitutional process, there were some really interesting a lot of laws there to be changed to make them compliant with the Constitution and the sort of rights in the Constitution. Um, and we then also get the got a law from the then Law commission to provide for asset forfeiture, which is something I'd never heard of before. <laughs> so this is about 95,96. So we got working on this legislation, made quite a lot of changes uh, to make it more effective. But we also heard then from sort of some of the overseas people who were assisting us about this non-conviction-based asset forfeiture that the Americans use. So when we... Had organised a study trip to the US to go and see what how they do business, and we then sort of came back and essentially beefed up the law with, uh, so that we have now both the conviction-based asset forfeiture and the non-conviction-based asset forfeiture, and the latter is is very often the most effective because with convictions we know criminal trials take a long time. And while you can freeze the assets, it's a very long time before you actually recover them.
0: Now, that's a, an incredible piece of legislation if one looks at the Prevention of Organized Crime Act, specifically Chapters 5 and 6, that make specific mention of preservation orders, asset forfeiture, etc. But going back to your time on the committee with regards to the, the section On the judiciary and the constitution mm. Hindsight is an incredible thing And in light of what we've seen happen In our, our young democracy the last couple of years If you could go back in time What would you do differently In regards to the writing of the legislation And in particular the judiciary section Of the constitution mm.
1: Well I think particularly about The judiciary NPA section Of the constitution But uh, I suppose generally in the constitution One of the major weaknesses, I think, is how much power it gave to the president to make appointments with no process. I mean, there was some of the later legislation where there was more of a process. Um, you know, and I suppose we were accused of uh, making constitutions and laws for a Mandela president, and we didn't have that for very long. But, you know, it was also the reality in a lot of the rest of the world at the time... The head of the executive essentially had a pretty unregulated power to, to make key appointments in law enforcement. And I think that for me was probably, I mean, the thing that I regret most, not that I think we were in a position to do much about it at the time, but I think if you look at the ease with which law enforcement is captured post 2010 or so, 2011, And people were just moved sideways, people fired, new people brought in. There were little in until the concourt actually made some judgments to make the firing process more difficult. It was actually ridiculously easy to capture law enforcement. And I think that's one of the things I'm sort of raising at the State Capture Commission in a way is that perhaps they should consider I mean, it is a bit big, but I think they really should consider making recommendations for the Constitution to be tightened up, especially around the appointment processes. You know, so President Ramaphosa now did follow a much more transparent process with the late appointments of Shamila Buttoy, but, you know, I think still... That I think one needs more than just interviews. You know, one of the things I'm advocating for is that the top leadership in law enforcement must go through very serious integrity testing at least once a year to make sure that we stay on, on the straight and narrow. Um, so that's a system we developed at the SIU that while we were there and it's, it's really worked well and I think that's why the SIU survived the last eight year much better than the rest of law enforcement Did but I do think we need To think about You know not just fixing the what went Wrong but are we What measures we should be thinking about To prevent these things Or at least to make them more difficult to happen in the Future
0: when I look at at Acts like poker And I look at the American RICO I realize that there's a lot of similarities And when we look at our constitutional Our constitution rather It's, it's a very liberal constitution but then when one looks at the, the three spheres of power, the, the executive, the judicial, and the legislative, it almost seems to be very similar to the Americans, but they still have checks and balances in place with regards to the appointment of, of people to the executive. Mm. It can't just be a random appointment by the president. And you see a lot of temporary appointments in America at this point in time because the president knows that Congress won't necessarily approve of his appointments. Yeah. What what were we lacking in terms of our legislation that allowed for the unilateral appointments of individuals to key points?
1: Mm. I mean, I, as I tried to say earlier, we did look a lot, you know, basically our law, legal system is much more based on the Commonwealth than the Americans. So we did take that non civil or non-conviction-based forfeiture from the Americans. But, you know, our traditional governance system... As constitutional values and so on come a lot more from the broader British tradition. And, you know, as I, as I said earlier, and it is a weakness in that tradition that your Prime Minister, or in our case the President, essentially have the very wide-ranging powers to make appointments, and they seldom qualified by, by anything else. I think one of the things we probably didn't appreciate is that we were comparing ourselves to settled democracies where institutions were strong. Parliament had strong oversight. So it was a bit – a lot more difficult to do wrong things. Um, but we were also, as I said, in a Mandela kind of area where we were a little bit starry-eyed and thought everything is going to be great into the future. Um but yeah I mean, I think, as I said earlier, that was one of the great weaknesses at at the time is we just did not appreciate understand what state capture may mean and and, and who it,
0: may become a president,
1: yeah, no, but you know and you know and generally i've I've done a lot of more reading subsequently, but you know, in many democracies where a party is in power for a very long time, things start going wrong because the party just doesn't fear being voted out of power you know and i think our constitution didn't have strong enough checks and balances to cater for that possibility of a really bad president (laughs) becoming president
0: before we go to our break we have a question on social media from Lorna neckwear she says i'd like to ask mr hoffmayer what he believes the role of the youth is in the battling of racism in today's age
1: now, I think it's a big question, but, you know, from my own experience, it really was the youth that led the way in the sort of late 70s into the 80s about trying to build a non-racial society. And, you know, I think we got a long way from the 60s to the 90s. But I, I think what we have not dealt with, in a sense, effectively in and I think it's more issue of governance than an issue of the constitution. We haven't dealt effectively with poverty and inequality. I think, you know, and I think the state capture period and the amount of money we lost during that period plays a significant role in why there just isn't the money to deal with it, with that now. But I do think that we are going into an era now where I think those issues will be dealt with much more. Effectively, but it's not always going to be speedy. I mean, you know, a lot of this is very entrenched in our society. I mean, inequality between men and women, for instance, or the way that older people often look down on younger people getting jobs. You know, so those values are not all a legacy of apartheid. Some of them are legacies of the cultures that we come from, and I think that's why it's not going to be so quick to to change things But I do think that we in an era now Where much more concerted attention Are given to those issues
0: When we come back we're going to chat About the reality of state capture You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas On High fm Today we're chatting to Willi Hofmeier, who recently retired as the head of the Asset Forfeiture Unit. Um, he has had a career of distinction within the public service, as well as as a, a struggle veteran in the 70s and the 80s. Um, Willi, in, in 2001, Judge Willem Heath made a very controversial remark when he left the, the Heath Special Investigating Unit, which had morphed into the Special Investigating Unit. He said, the government is soft on corruption. What do you think of that statement almost 19 years ago when one looks at the situation we find ourselves in today?
1: I'm afraid that I tend to agree that government just has not been effective enough about corruption. I think there was a time when the Scorpions were very active in the sort of 25-2010 period and the SIU was getting some real contentious Difficult cases to look at, that I think there was more seriousness about corruption. But I'm afraid it, I think that has been one of our failings, is that there's been a lot of, you know, part of the big capture was the capture of law enforcement <laughs> to ensure in a sense that there isn't too much action on the corruption front. But yeah, that is the one area where I think we could have done a lot better over the last 20 years.
0: How does somebody like yourself, who has been very vocal against state capture, very vocal against the corruption that's taking place, how does somebody like you reconcile with the fact that you still served in that government despite the odds? And that at times people were appointed above you to manage you as the head of a department and other heads of, of critical departments in law enforcement, and that those people did not have the interest of the state at heart?
1: I mean, it it was, for me, a sort of long-term decision. So, you know, we didn't know how long that period was going to take. It felt at times like it may go on for 15, 20 years. And, you know, so I did talk to a lot of my old friends and comrades, and I think I was in a very important position in the NPA, and... Sean Abrams was desperate for me to leave. He even offered me other jobs in the state to to leave because he wanted to appoint his own, and we couldn't know what that would mean, people into key jobs. So I think one of the things that has sort of saved the NPA, actually, is that there were not very many vacancies in this top three layers of the organization over the last eight years. So there were a limited number of of appointments that could be made. I think in other institutions we're not so lucky. I think when Antlimesa came into the Hawks there were huge amounts of vacancies and a lot of very bad appointments were made and they are still there in the middle management of the organization. So how one, you know, so... It was some of the least pleasant. I mean, I, I often think it was worse than being on hunger straight because then at least then your fate is in your own hands. But, you know, sitting around in the NPA and seeing it slowly being destroyed or sometimes rapidly being destroyed around you was one of the worst times in my life. And, but I still think it was the right decision to stick it out and not allow them to appoint another Bad person in the top management Do you think we've turned the
0: corner Do you think the right appointments have been made In respect of the head of the Hawks The head of the NPA, the creation of new units
1: I think so Yeah, I think the new president has Done really well in that But As I just said I don't think we must underestimate The fact that there are Many bad appointments That are still around from the previous Appointments. And so, and I don't think those people are sitting still. I think there is a fairly active, whether on politically, on social media, elsewhere, there's an active movement to get back to state capture from those people who wielded power at the time. So I do think there's a need for vigilance. I think there's a need to continue to act against those people who, Committed criminal offenses and so on, and I think gradually we will break the hold, but you know I think there are still patches in government that are not in the good hands. Let <laughs> me put it that
0: way. in your opinion, when one looks at the role that um, civil society and the private sector have played in bringing to the fore um, Major instances of fraud and corruption that have taken place both within the public and the private sector and obviously you need the public and the private sector to act in a symbiotic way for these frauds and corruptions to take place especially in the tender processes. Mm. Do you think that the civil, civil society and the, the private sector still have a role to play in law enforcement?
1: I think, you know, coming from where I was as an activist outside the state, I do think the role of civil society in a democracy is very important. And I think it's very important that we must continue to support civil society. I think their role with the state at the moment is less antagonistic because government's doing the right thing, generally, although there's still patches where wrong things happen. But I think it's very important for me that... We keep a vibrant civil society and that we keep very alert about our rights and what's going right and what's going wrong in government and I I say so partly because you know we have a you know our constitution is a federalist compromise so it's not actually that the president has absolute he has very little power over municipalities for instance other than to get people to invest law enforcement to investigate it So, you know, I think those that sought to capture the state, parts of the state, bits of the state here and there to to benefit themselves and their factions of parties, they're still around, many of them, and I don't think they're necessarily behaving better. So I do think there's still an important role for us to be vigilant and for civil society to keep us in the state on our toes.
0: When we hear about state capture, everybody over a cup of coffee, in a bar, over a beer, wherever they may be, imme- immediately says Zuma and the Guptas. Are they correct in assuming it's just Zuma and the Guptas, or was it a huge thing that happened?
1: I think it's got more complicated roots, you know, for... Example, even in the days of the Scorpions, as you will know from an affidavit I filed, I had real concerns about law enforcement being used against one faction in the ANC against another faction, which I don't think is the the role of law enforcement. So, I mean, I think it's a kind of matter of public record that the ANC, the ruling party itself, is pretty split President got in by a very narrow margin and because premiers, mayors and so on have a lot of power in the places where they, they are based, you know, I don't think we are past the stage of people wanting to capture particular institutions in the state so that they can get a financial benefit out of it. It's on a lot less Big scale than it was before But you know in any democracy One expects that to happen That people who have power Are in complete control of an Institution may try and use it For their benefit
0: so, so would we say that what happened with the Guptas And with President Zuma Was more the catalyst Because it was so overt Rather than something That was exceptional
1: hmm. <clears throat> I mean, as I say, I I think it was actually a good thing that it was so overt because it made all of us a lot more conscious about what was going on. Um, But I, I, I do think that the issue of people wanting to control parts of the state with their grouping in a political party for their own benefit or for the benefit of building their support is something that's common in democracies you know America New York went through I think a hundred years of a very institutionalized patronage system run by the Democratic Party where sort of giving contracts to your buddies and them giving you parts of it back you know raised huge amounts of money for that party that enabled them to control the bigger machine of the party. And, you know, so it, it's not a unique thing that's happened in South Africa. And I, I think we, we can be thankful for how vigilant civil society, some of our law enforcement bodies were. I think the public protector played a very important role while Tuli Modern Seller was there. But, you know, I think we did have a range of institutions which we able to bring things into, pu- into the public domain and to raise public awareness of it. And I think that's what ultimately – it was that, I think, ultimately that saved us from a much longer period of systematic state capture.
0: So when one looks at South Africa, we have – and we've seen this. We've seen it after the local elections. We saw it after the general elections. We have a functioning democracy. We've seen that the ruling party, as well as all others that have been involved, have adhered to the judiciary when court rulings have been made. So we have a functioning democracy, we have a functioning judiciary, we have a functioning parliament, we have a functioning executive. It's not as bleak as one would assume it to be. Would you agree with me that perhaps we need something similar to the TRC, where with all this economic crime that's taken place, perhaps instead of having a commission of inquiry, instead of having these various other um, systematic processes taking place to try to root out the corrupt, we give them the opportunity <clears throat> to come forward, make declaration, pay restitution if they can, and receive some form of amnesty. Am I living in La La Land, or is it possible?
1: I'm afraid our constitution just would not allow for an amnesty of any kind. And that's why the TRC amnesty had to be written specifically into the Constitution on limited ground. So I think there are other things that one will have to do, look at it, in terms of dealing with it. Um, you know, and obviously the state can, to so, the prosecuting authority can to some degree. say so if people come to us with evidence about wrongdoing of others, we will potentially treat you as a witness if we uh, convinced that you're doing the right thing you know and for me that's probably the way to go is to get people you know to create an environment where people are comfortable and have enough trust in our institutions to come forward and say i may have been a re- not a major player in all of this but i do know the things i have some evidence that i can give you i think that's what we are going to need to be able to deal with the big players who were the ones who captured the state. Um, But amnesty, I'm afraid, I mean, at my New York, no Hong Kong, I think, tried it and then said afterwards, we're going to punish everybody, but our constitution, unless it's changed, and that's not going to be easy, Um, it would be very difficult.
0: So maybe looking at restorative justice in terms of What's allowed in the Criminal Procedure Act, should people make plea bargains in terms of 105, perhaps mm. restitution orders in terms of 297 or 300? But that is, that is something that needs to be looked at. I, I think the, the immunity from prosecution in terms of Section 204 has been abused in the past, and the NPA is very reluctant to use that. But – be that as it may, we're in a very important time in our country's history and I think we've heard so much from the Zondo Commission mm-hmm. that we know what we've done wrong and we know what we need to do to come
1: right. So. But let, let me just say, I'm not quite sure. I mean, the only controversy about Section 204, which is taking guilty people to give evidence, was around Agliotti and Jackie Salebi. And frankly, I think it was a completely correct decision the biggest possible threat that you can have to a democracy to law enforcement is when your police chief is on the take and he's actively trying to destroy at that time the scorpions because they were independent and potentially he did his risk assessment and he knew they were (laughs) the only ones who may get him but you know I have, I was part of the NPA leadership at that time and I have no qualms in retrospect that that was, it was a difficult, complicated decision, but I've got no doubt that it was the correct decision.
0: The Harry Null um, supporters are going to be very happy to hear that. Um, obviously, but It
1: wasn't just Harry's decision. It was Vusi who got fired because Mbeki did not want him to investigate Salebi. Salebi. I think a lot of people sacrificed a lot to ensure that the rule of law can prevail against powerful people in this country. And that was one of the few instances where it happened. And the costs to people in the NBA and elsewhere was immense. It led to the disbandment of the scorpions, for instance. So I really, as I say, I think... In our current environment, if we do not get people, 204 witnesses to come f- forward and say, I was part of it. I know where the money went. I have the evidence about who did wrong. We will be sitting with these state capture cases 20, 30 years from now because they are incredibly difficult to come to, to prosecute unless you have insiders who can tell you how these complicated money laundering schemes worked, who was Doing what? We've got documents that they may have kept safe. But unless people do come forward, we're going to sit for a very long time with big unresolved issues around state capture.
0: Well, you heard it here that it's very important that the state considers the Section 204s as well as what's written into the Protected Disclosures Act. In closing, Vili, you're a very young 65, and it's very sad that our laws are so strong in respect of the retirement age. Where do you see yourself in the next 10 years?
1: Well, uh, I'm looking for a job. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not quite Mm -hmm. unemployed in the street with my placard, but I I mean, I'm not looking for a job for money. I'm looking for a job where I can make some difference to the future of our country. Ideally, I, I don't know if it's going to be possible to get a job in the state once you hit retirement age but that is my first choice but otherwise you know i'm looking at the sort of anti-corruption ngos some place where you can continue to to make some difference in dealing with the remnants of corruption in our country
0: willie Hoffmeyer, firstly we thank you for being our guest and thank you secondly for your service to south africa for almost 5 decades
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
0: This show will be uploaded as a podcast tomorrow. If uh, you enjoyed today's live broadcast, you're more than welcome to download the podcast, which will be available at hifmcom.